Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Good evening and thanks for your company. It's a special night tonight as we run an extended show for you. It's going to be a packed night, so buckle up as we discuss the issues that matter to you and infuriate the left. Now, one of the benefits of being on the centre-right of politics is that everybody else eventually falls over their own tripwires. When you're making it up as you go along, as people from the left invariably do, it doesn't take much to be mugged by reality. Australia's own Peter Fitzsimons is a fine exponent of this, defending the right of Muslims, but not Christians, to have strident opinions about homosexuality, or arguing for a special Indigenous voice to Parliament, but only one that he agrees with. Here's another example, this time from overseas. Some residents at a student housing block at the University of California have banned white people to protect themselves from racism. The rules of the House state, quote, Many people of colour moved here to be able to avoid white violence and presence. So respect their decision of avoidance if you bring white guests. White guests are not allowed in the common areas, unquote. Well, to paraphrase a famous line by an apocryphal US general in the Vietnam War, the students had to become racist in order to prevent it. The bigotry of the left is not a laughing matter for people like Lyle Shelton, though. I'll be speaking to him later about the case he is fighting to defend not only free speech, but also the innocence of childhood. I'll also speak to Gideon Rosner of the Institute of Public Affairs about the direction Anthony Albanese is taking Australia in. And in a second, we'll have another look at the shark debate just as summer approaches and Aussie families start planning their annual holidays to the beach. Then I'll be joined by my regular contributors, Alexandra Marshall from The Spectator, Australia and South Australian Liberal Senator Alex Antich. Plus, Wokewatch will see whether the provocateurs at Triple J are earning their wages these days. Now, let's get into it. Now, right from the start, the COVID pandemic divided people around the world into two groups. Not the infected and the uninfected. That was never going to happen because we were all going to catch it one day anyway. No, the pandemic divided us into those who value their freedom and those who don't. You didn't need a PhD in liberal philosophy to recognise the signs Western governments were making way back in February and March 2020. By then, we already knew that the virus was most dangerous to the elderly. People aged under 60 were of almost no risk at all. Yet the response from our governments was to lock us up, as if we couldn't be trusted to manage our own health. The official response also had a frightening appearance of being globally coordinated. Before we knew it, we were locked in our homes and paid not to work, despite the fact that work to most people is one of the main things 
providing them with purpose and meaning in life. Dissenting voices, even from world-class epidemiologists, were censored, and cheap forms of medical cures were discredited. As if from nowhere, vaccines were touted as the only way out. Everybody just needed to get jabbed. The idea that we could instead treat those who caught the virus was categorically dismissed. This was the moment when the media, armed with the freedoms that previous generations died defending, should have proved its profound and central role in our liberal democracy. Instead, it failed dismally. Previously, authoritative newspapers and broadcasters became shills for Big Pharma, one of the most heavily fined and criminal industries in corporate history, who made billions from the illusion that healthy people needed to be jabbed with an experimental drug to protect them from a mostly harmless virus. Politicians who seem drawn to the profession these days because they have delusions of superiority, pushed for harder and harder lockdowns, almost as if they wanted to punish their constituents. I attended the first major rally in Sydney in July last year, when tens of thousands of fed-up ordinary Australians filled the length of Broadway from City Road to Town Hall. It was one of the happiest, most multicultural events I've ever attended. But Premier Gladys Berejiklian was, quote, disgusted by the rally. She said we had, quote, shown utter contempt for fellow citizens who are currently doing it tough, unquote. Well, they were doing it tough, all right, because of the pointless lockdowns, not the virus. Two factors emerged as making the virus worse, being overweight and having a lack of vitamin D, which you get from exposure to sunlight. But not one politician anywhere in the world told people to get the hell off their couches, switch off Netflix, and go out and get some bloody exercise. I walked past an outdoor gym in a park in Sydney where the council had hung a sign saying, quote, use this park at your own risk, unquote. As if being outdoors and exercising was dangerous. The sign should have said, don't use this park at your own risk. But that's the state of politics these days. Politicians don't want independent, fearless citizens. They want compliant cogs in their visionary machine where they control the levers. Similarly, the multi-trillion dollar medical industry doesn't want us to think we are healthy. They want us to think we are just sick enough to be filling out their prescriptions and rolling up our sleeves for their experimental jabs. I'm proud to say that the day police shut Bondi Beach for the first time in March 2020, I was the first person to cross the police tape and paddle out to go surfing. On one occasion, I crossed a state border illegally to spend time with my dying mum, a criminal act for which I am prouder than Ned Kelly, but not as guilty. Harsher restrictions prevented me from visiting her one last time as she faded away, and I couldn't attend her funeral, watching it instead on Zoom. I can't, complain, I can't claim anything special here. Other people had their lives, businesses, or families destroyed by the lockdowns and are still picking up the pieces. Some people's lives will never recover. The heartless bastards who imposed all this on us never did a cost-benefit analysis of their policies. They just claimed moral authority to ruin lives and vilified anybody who disagreed with them, even criminalising debate. So afraid were they of the voiceless being given a voice. 
The true cost was always going to be high and impossible to deny. The Telegraph in London reported on the weekend that, quote, for 14 of the past 15 weeks, England and Wales have averaged around 1,000 extra deaths a week, none of which are due to COVID, unquote. They were instead caused by delay and deferment of treatment for other illnesses while people were locked up. The toll in Australia will surely be similarly alarming. Nobody involved can claim they were misled. Common sense could have told them their lockdowns and vaccine mandates were not the answer and would cause more harm than good. We don't need a royal commission into this. We need criminal trials. Now, coming up next, my interview with Lyle Shelton, who is defending the most important free speech case, legal case in Australia right now. Now, as summer approaches and Aussie families start thinking about their annual holiday to the beach, it should be noted that our beaches aren't as safe as they used to be. Sharks are proliferating off our coastline and attacks on swimmers, surfers and divers are increasing. This is no accident. Over the past two or three decades, a new club of researchers has formed that not only relies on grants to study these beasts, but wants the rest of us to think they are both endangered and fascinating, worthy of our respect and appreciation for the role they play at the top of the food chain. As a surfer and the father of a surfer, I'm more inclined to see them as violent predators or vermin that are now reaching plague proportions. People who express concern about this are routinely dismissed by politicians. And it goes without saying that the issue has never been a major part of any election debate, despite the trauma and tragedy it can cause. Instead, people like me are dismissed as paranoid and gullible, naively affected by the stupid mechanical shark in the film Jaws, which alerted millions of people to the horrifying presence of great whites in the ocean in 1975. In 2014, Sydney University academic Christopher Neff coined a new term, the Jaws effect, which supposedly defines the political response to an, to an attack based on assumptions about the shark's intentions, the perception that all shark attacks are fatal, and that killing the shark is the only solution. Never mind that no politician would ever respond to an attack that way these days. It's been years since we had a politician who dared introduce policies that placed a human life above that of an animal like a great white. What Neff doesn't realise is that the Jaws effect applies to him as well. Jaws is set on an island off the northeast coast of the United States, where the entire economy relies on the money spent by tourists over the summer holidays. When a woman is killed by a shark while skinny dipping one night at the start of summer, the town mayor tries to cover up the cause, saying it might have been a boating accident. Tourists and fishermen continue to go in the water and two more people die. The villains in the movie are those who try to convince the townsfolk and tourists that there's nothing to worry about, that the water is perfectly safe. Like all villains throughout history, they're the people who twist the truth in order to save their own livelihoods. In other words, the villains in Jaws are the same as the researchers and bureaucrats who now dominate the debate about sharks in Australia. Their careers depend on us believing great whites are endangered and therefore require extensive research and expensive management programs. 
When these scientists were lobbying to protect great whites throughout the 1990s, they were unequivocal that the species population was in a precipitous decline. In the 23 years since the species has been protected, however, their confidence in their ability to declare which direction the species population is going has mysteriously diminished. Despite fishermen complaining they can't haul in a catch without sharks taking it off the line, surfers reporting constant sightings and encounters, and of course the increasing rate of attacks, our researchers struggle to estimate how many sharks there are out there. The latest estimate, made almost five years ago, is that there could be 2,900 great whites off the east coast of Australia. Or the number could be more than four times that at 12,800. They just don't know. And as long as the research funding continues and protection isn't lifted, they don't care. But it's not just enough to dismiss the theory that the seemingly increasing population is causing an undeniable increase in attacks. These researchers need to also find ways to make these attacks seem more acceptable. The latest example of this is a report published only last Friday with the title, Increased Shark Bite Survivability Revealed by Two Centuries of Australian Records. So the people who are being attacked are increasingly likely to survive. Sounds positive, right? But that's not actually what the report found. The data showed that the survival rate of swimmers and divers attacked by great whites has decreased. That's right, decreased. The report's title refers, refers mostly to the survival rate of victims from bull sharks. But why would the title focus on the positive findings and ignore the negative ones? These people don't only downplay attacks. One of them has even, in the past, made a joke about them. Vic Pettimores, who runs the shark management program for the New South Wales Department of Primary Industries, joked in 2012 that the two fatal attacks in Western Australia that year constituted a, quote, bumper season, unquote. I've emailed him several times asking him if he, if he regrets that joke, but never received a reply. The New South Wales DPI's focus recently has been to promote extensive and unproven mitigation strategies while also funding counselling for the friends, family and witnesses traumatised by attacks. Like the town mayor in Jaws, they are more concerned with preserving their own careers than preventing people being attacked in the first place. If there is a Jaws effect in Australia this summer, we should measure it in the number of avoidable deaths caused by the abundance of killer sharks at our beaches, not the supposedly irrational fear ordinary Australians have of being attacked while enjoying the ocean. Coming up next, Gideon Rosner of the Institute of Public Affairs. Climate Change and Energy Minister Chris Bowen made an ominous statement to the Electric Vehicle Summit in Canberra on Friday. Quote, Now is the time to have an orderly and sensible discussion about whether fuel efficiency standards could help improve the supply of electric vehicles into the Australian market. Unquote. Well, when a Labor politician says we need to have an orderly and sensible discussion, he means you need to remain orderly while he makes nonsensical demands. The fuel efficiency standards to which he referred are just another way of saying he wants to reward dealers 
for selling battery-powered cars and punish them for selling petrol-powered ones. This is what he calls, quote, choice. Electric cars are expensive and unpopular for good reason. They can't go on long trips because they take eight hours to recharge after five hours of driving. They also depreciate quickly. Bowen knows this, which is why he needs to coerce you into buying one. And if you don't, and don't buy a, a car at all because traditional ones are too expensive, then Bowen still won't mind. He promised his friends at the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change in June that he would reduce Australia's emissions by 43% by 2030, which he can't do without either filling the roads with electric cars, taking petrol-powered cars off the road, or both. But even car buyers whose choice is influenced by environmental concerns won't necessarily share Bowen's affection for the battery-powered variety. It's chilling to think how fast this is all happening and how acceptable these policies have become. An Australian government has announced it will manipulate the market for cars to make it harder for you to choose the cheapest, most reliable model for you. And he's doing this because of climate change, which as we've been told is the main cause of floods, fires, droughts and cyclones. It's also responsible for, if you believe the so-called experts, childhood obesity. Anyway, to explain where Bowen's electric car policy will take us, let's bring in Alexandra Marshall of The Spectator Australia. Alexandra, welcome to the show. It is an absolute pleasure to be here. First, let's get down to the key point for consumers. Are these electric cars better and do they perform better than traditional petrol cars? Well, first of all, the best thing to look at is the market because markets are very smart when it comes to working out what a good product is and what a bad product is. And early on in the electric car market, you saw that almost no one was taking them because they are expensive and they had a short range and there wasn't the infrastructure to support them. But as uh, the product got better, particularly with Tesla, we saw a few more people taking them on, mostly people who had plenty of money. So if they made a mistake, it wasn't the end of the world. Now this led to Tesla in particular competing to make a better product. However, it still hasn't been a good enough product at a good enough price to convince the majority population to switch out their petrol and diesel cars. Now in Europe, because they weren't getting anywhere with their ideological push, they decided to start sweeten the deal. They took big tax concessions, they gave them free parking. And even with these enormous government pushes, they still can't get more than a small percentage of people to take them up. Now that is a great indicator that Australians and other people around the world don't see e-cars as the solution. Hybrids, closer, they don't mind the hybrid version, but that's basically having green virtue with a backup oil rig. So people are still uh, comfortable with that. But no, I think that uh, e-cars have a little way to go before they've been considered a good product in their own right. Everything else to the side. But Alexandra, one of the reasons Bowen says we need to buy more of these cars is that other countries are buying them. So, and, and of course, you know, we have to be like other countries, that goes without saying. But is it true? Are they, are they popular overseas? Well, the reason that Bowen didn't just say how great are e-cars, you know, how wonderful Australians should go out and buy them, and he had to announce it with a policy portfolio, is because people aren't buying them in other countries without help. And 
He's about 10 years behind the rest of Europe because Europe had incentives and now they've decided that those incentives are a waste of taxpayer money and even places like Germany and Norway who are the most green, let's embrace e-car people have decided that no, no, we're going to stop funding e-cars and let the market sort it out because they're not getting anywhere with them. And as soon as the e-car incentives were dropped, people have stopped buying them because again, they haven't gotten anywhere. And when you've got subsidies, there's no demand for the market to improve its product. Well, they put those subsidies right <laughs> into their manifesto, didn't they, Alexandra? Their manifesto powering Australia. There's, a, there's an interesting line in it. It says, quote, two in three Australians say they would consider buying an electric car, but the upfront cost is keeping them locked out, unquote. Now, only a big spending government would then conclude that the logical solution is to subsidise the cars. This is, just an, uh, this is just an illusion as a saving. Alexander, does the government think that consumers are so stupid that they don't realise that they're paying for the subsidies anyway? Well, there were two problems. The, forget the fact that the taxpayer pays for the subsidies. Most people will ignore that. Uh, plenty of people are willing to try things if you give them to them basically for free. That's sort of a, a sweetener. But the public has to be very careful because what's happening in Europe is as they basically ban petrol cars, say, here's all this cheap, lovely e-cars, you know, we'll help you get them. And then they withdraw the subsidies, they withdraw the free parking, they withdraw the tax perks, and all of a sudden you've got a product that's twice as expensive, does half as much as you want it to, and there's no backup anymore. You can't retract. So Bowen is saying, you know, come and buy these e-cars, they'll be wonderful. Just ignore the fact that we're going to take away your choice in about two years. So the public should be aware that it's not just what they pay today, it's what they're going to pay in five years' time and, and for the rest of time. It's also how they're going to charge the things. Most of these things are going to be plugged in at night. And we're heading towards renewable energy. Alexandra, where's the floor in this plan? Okay, there's a pretty serious floor. And when I pointed it out yesterday in The Spectator, I got screamed at by the entire forces of the left because it's, the problem is lithium. Now, unlike silicon, which is in technology and everywhere, lithium is vanishingly rare. And we've known there's a problem with lithium coming since about the 90s when the tech industry panicked because it's in every phone and every TV and every laptop. And suddenly they thought, oh, we've got about 200 years worth of lithium, it should be fine. But then e-cars came along and renewables, solar, uh, wind, battery farms, it's all lithium intensive. And so now we've got the problem of, we don't have enough lithium for all the battery cars for a start. So we don't, we can't actually build the cars. Then as you say, we've got to plug them into the grid to charge them and uh, Bowen's all for the uh, renewables. Then you've got to build more solar, more wind, more battery farms from the same lithium source making the cost of lithium more expensive and making both those technologies more expensive. Forget that you can't even, there's not enough to build them. So there's a huge problem and flaw in this system coming and Bowen has not even been questioned about it, let alone does he have a solution. But there's also, so we're building cars, we're planning to build cars that are powered partly by lithium and these cars could alternatively be powered by petrol if we maintained the current technology. That lithium is also needed for our phones and various other electronic equipment. 
which, where, in which there is no alternative. How smart is this, Alexandra? Well, my favourite thing uh, that I hear from the left basically yesterday when I was being shouted at was, oh, well, there's other battery things. We'll be able to find a new technology solution. The answer is no. They've been trying to replace lithium batteries for a long time, and they're either too dangerous for replacements or too large. And so that's why we use lithium. It's perfect for small electronic devices. Now, your phone is going to cost a fortune if you waste all your lithium in a car battery, not to mention what happens to the cost of the actual car itself, which we're going to see double and triple. And this is why the European Commission for the e-cars has said to basically the governments, we can't deliver what we promised. And Australia gets all its e-cars from Europe. So if Europe can't deliver e-cars, Chris Bowen's going to come up empty on his lovely car idea. And isn't the, most of the lithium going to come from China anyway? Well, funnily enough, uh, China controls most of the lithium mining because lithium mining is nasty. It includes things like sulfuric acid and it's not good. Uh, so America closed most of its lithium plants. But most of the lithium is in South America and Australia has a fair bit and I think Russia's got some, Ukraine's got a little bit and China, yes, does have some. But unfortunately, with the whole world's resources of lithium, there is nowhere near enough to meet demand. And this is including the reserves they know about. Now, we often hear, well, there's plenty of lithium in the crust, but lithium is uh, diffuse. It's sort of spread around. So you have to pretty much dig up the entire surface of the earth and then sift it to get your lithium. And so their solution is to mine lithium from the ocean. I mean, if you're on protecting the environment, can we please stop mining the ocean for minerals? It's not going to help. What, what happens to these batteries once they're no, no good? I mean, these cars are, are pretty useless after about 10 years, aren't they? What happens then? So I'm sure some people remember that during the late 90s and early 2000s, you used to have these collections come around to your office, or your office to pick up the e-waste. And the idea was that they'd start recycling lithium batteries because they knew it was a, it was a rare resource. Unfortunately, like most recycling, it's expensive, it's intensive, it doesn't work particularly well, so they stopped recycling the majority of lithium. That's what's going to happen to these batteries. They're going to basically be wasted lithium resources until we get really, really stuck. So yeah, your car that, you know, your petrol car you can buy for 20 years old and you know someone can buy it cheap, that's not going to be the case with an e-car. It's like buying a 10-year-old iPhone. Would you do it? No, of course not. No, of course not. I just want to, I just want to read a, a very good quote from your piece in The Spectator. Quote, car manufacturers admit that there is only enough li lithium for 14 million e-cars, while the World Economic Forum says the world needs 5 billion cars, e-cars, to get to net zero. Unquote. Alexandra, how does this make sense? It doesn't. So, and also what I love about this is that's to get there once. But people don't just buy one car, they'll buy 10 or 12 throughout their lifetime. So how many times are they going to try and rebuild those 5 billion cars? I mean, it is an equation that just scales into nowhere almost immediately. So yeah, if the World Economic Forum has admitted there's a problem, well then there's definitely a problem with their net zero goal. <laughs> But all this coercion into buying e-cars and the shortage of lithium and all that sort of, all, all those problems, do you think this will affect the elites as badly as it will affect ordinary people like you and I, Alexandra? 
Well, of course we need cars. So just like the energy grid, they'll eventually rip up renewables and put nuclear in. We know it's gonna happen because you need to turn the lights on. The same thing will happen with cars. But one thing to watch out for is Norway, which is ahead of the curve, has just said, well, thanks everyone for buying e-cars. We're gonna remove all the subsidies and everything because we're going to go toward a model where we have less private cars. So they want people to walk and catch buses. They don't want people to buy any cars including e-cars. So I presume that's the whole you will have nothing and you will be happy kind of model <laughs> where you'll be walking like I was this afternoon. <laughs> Alexandra, don't tell Chris Bowen that. You'll only give him ideas. Now, look, before you go, a new survey has found that Gen Z and millennials, uh, at least half of them, not only want to become influencers, but also believe everything that influencers tell them. Alexandra, you're a millennial influencer. Is it as glamorous as they think it is? Well, first of all, I am not a millennial. I'm a Gen Z. Thank you very much. The millennials are the ones that are about 10 years older than us and they are younger than us, and they are completely insane. Uh, so don't lump me in with millennials. And uh, yeah, they will believe anything they see on Instagram because they come from a world where their reality is basically manufactured on a phone screen. And that is a problem because they, when you watch things like the World Economic Forum intro video, it is done like a disaster film and they believe this cinematic version of our planet. And that's why you have to be careful with this new generation because they think the world is a film. And if you're really good at editing it, well, then you can control what they think. Well, talk about good at editing it. The, the story, I got this story from the Oz, which is the youth wing of the Australian. <laughs> it refers to something called the influencer economy. Alexandra, can you call a bunch of people with fake followers getting free holidays in return for Instagram posts and economy? Well, you may not like it, Fred, but yes, there is real money tied up in this influencer gig. It mostly started with promoting things like products. So retail companies got involved and said, hey, if you can just hold this up while you do your little photo shoot, that'd be great. But now it's expanded to full-on careers for these people. And I'm sure the unions will try and get involved at some point because you can't have people uh, being entrepreneurs. I don't really mind so much. If they want to find a way to make money, then that's better than sitting at home playing video games. So we'll keep that. But yeah, it is a real economy with real money and they hold real influence. So be warned. I suppose, I suppose it's all about the product placement really, isn't it? <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Alexandra Marshall, thanks so much for your time. Thank you very much. That's Alexandra Marshall, whose work can be seen every day on the Spectator Australia website. Well, from Alexandra to Alex. In a minute, I'll be talking to the South Australian Senator, Alex Antich, who, along with Matt Canavan in Queensland, is the closest Australia has to a Ron DeSantis, the brilliant governor of Florida, whose unwavering adherence to conservative principles is making him one of the most popular political leaders in the world right now. Antich himself is leading a revival of conservatism in the South Australian Liberal Party, repopulating branches with people who share Robert Menzies' original vision of the party and are supporting candidates accordingly. It's amazing how that works, isn't it? This has been described by some people as a bloodbath and Antich himself has been described as Rambo. This would surprise regular viewers of this show. Alex, a regular guest, might come across as resolutely principled, but his style is nothing but civil. However, what he has been achieving in South Australia should be a lesson for Liberals in other states, whose strategy is mostly to timidly offer a slower version of Labor's path to social and economic destruction. 
Alex's efforts in South Australia deserve attention because they prove that true Menzian liberalism is still possible in Australia today. Alex, welcome back to the show. Well, thanks, Fred. Thanks for having me. Very nice to be called civil. I'm, uh, I'm pleased with that. That's the best thing I've been called today. <laughs> well, let's keep it up, shall we? And let's start with the grassroots. When did you become aware that there were enough people prepared to join the Liberal Party and return it to the path that Menzies originally put it on? Oh, look, I think um, it's become increasingly apparent, I think, over the last couple of years that there's a, um, you know, a, a call for this kind of revival inside the, the, the major Conservative Party, I would say. I mean, I, you know, I think that's uh, the Liberal Party's um, position in, uh, in Australian politics and, and returning it to that stage is, is a sort of a bit of a passion project of mine. Uh, it dawned on me pro probably two years, more probably more, but, but certainly two years ago, that we really had seen this sort of almost splintering of... Uh, of conservatives, libertarians, almost nationalists that have drifted off into the minor parties, uh, weakening the ultimate uh, voice of the conservative movement. So, um, you know, we had a couple of things that happened in South Australia. Well, the first one was the, uh, the termination of pregnancy bill, the late-term abortion bill, which was probably the thing that lit the fire in a lot of people. Um, but also, I think we had, a, we had a government, a state government that was frankly, drifting from the principles a little bit. We had, uh, you know, increases in land tax. So we had some difficulties with uh, interacting with small businesses. And I think ultimately the, the COVID experience with huge chunks of power being handed over to the bureaucrats reminded people of the need for the vision of Sir Robert Menzies, which was to try and bring all of these people under the one banner and bring them back in because, you know, united we're strong and divided we fall. So. It kind of developed from there, and um, you know I've been talking to people about it for a long period of time. But it was almost uh, as though the last eighteen months or so, people are really starting to get interested in politics again. And 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 I think that's a great thing. I think getting people involved in the political process is really the thing that's been missing because we had a lot of frustration out there that people were contacting their MPs of of all political persuasions, by the way. Um, with very strong cases, a lot of public support for what they were saying, and they felt as though they weren't always being listened to. So the message I always had for them was, well, rather than wait till people get to the ballot box, why don't you be involved with the process of selecting the person that stands in the core flutes, uh, you know, uh, frame, if you like, and, and being involved in party politics does just that. It gives people who have these views so much more leverage to get their voices heard and that's what we're finding. We're finding people that share the party's values, the party's traditional Menzian values uh, of freedom of speech, freedom of choice, uh, freedom of expression, all these things and a whole lot more are now understanding that their most powerful weapon is to be involved in party politics, get involved with branch meetings, get involved with AGMs, elect office bearers, and ultimately, we hope, um, you know, elect people at pre-selection that carry their values to parliament. So how many branches have you managed to dominate and how many seats do your supporters hope to swing? Oh, look, I don't know exactly. I mean, it depends on, depends on you know, the sort of the, the, the lie of the land. But, I mean, we've had a significant influx of new members. I mean, it's difficult to know exactly because, of course, people join and, uh, and get involved and sometimes you don't know about it, obviously. I mean, um, but we, we think that, you know, we've probably added... Uh, you know, a thousand new members maybe through this process and they're out involved in the parties, you know, involved, uh, you know, uh, uh, branch meetings and those sorts of things. And so it's very hard to put your finger on numbers, but I think ultimately we're going to start to see good people getting promoted through the party and good people 
rising through the ranks. And I think the other thing that's happened through this is it's it's identifying future leaders. A lot of people have stepped up to the plate now who who I think will make great future parliamentarians. And that's a that's a really good thing. I mean, after all, each uh, each branch, each SEC, each FEC that we have has a membership officer. And the point of that is to grow the membership and get people involved. So I, I, it's, a, it's a really positive time in the, in the SA division. Well, it's interesting that you call it positive. The local media like to see it as a confrontation. The developments in the South Australian Party have been described in the advertiser as a bloodbath and you've been called Rambo, which makes it all sound very acrimonious. <laughs> but let's talk about what sort of topics this... Get gone. I was going to say, I, I, I think it's more like Rambo and Rambo 4, actually, the one where he was doing, Sylvester Stallone had kind of drifted a bit, gone to seed. But, uh, it's, well, he was a bit more placid in that one. Well, what sort of topics are causing the most acrimony at these uh, branch meetings, Alex? They're, they're a range. Uh, I mean, I, I think the ones I've described are probably as, as acute as any. I think the, the most recent in people's minds has been some of the freedom issues with uh, you know, the, the uh, exercise of COVID powers. And, you know, we've had small business owners get involved because of you know, the lockdowns. We've had uh, people that are worried about, uh, you know, things, uh, social policy type issues with, you know, issues of euthanasia and, uh, uh, you know, the late-term abortion bill that went through. So there's a range of views. It's not really any one type of person. The thing that's been really good about this is there's been a broad range of conservatives and libertarians, which really is what the party was at the first first hurdle with Menzies. So we're seeing them come back. And, and I think there's, you know, there's, there's, there's good news on the horizon for this. And, and I, look, I don't see this as being, um, you know, anything controversial at all. I think ultimately we want to get people involved in politics. It's a facet of life generally that people have drifted from community projects. We don't see as many people involved with RSLs or footy clubs as much or rotary clubs, whatever it is. So finding ways to get people back engaged in the political processes has been great. And they're getting revitalised and reinvigorated here in South Australia. We're finding, you know, that there's there are events going on where people are getting involved and that's what we need. That's what we need. We can't afford another uh, four terms of the Labor, Labor government here. And this is the way home, staying true to your principles. Amen oh, to that. But your detractors would call this branch stacking. Is that how you'd describe it? No, look, well, I, I wouldn't. Uh, unsurprisingly, I wouldn't. And, you know, I think what we're seeing here is a very um, broad ranging um, membership drive, really. I mean, I think we're seeing people from all different parts of the state. Um, I mean, this concept of branch stacking is, uh, you know, it's given a sort of a pejorative connotation. And I think it's usually, I mean, there's no real definition for it. It's usually uh, describing an attack on a particular branch or FEC or moving people around left, right, and centre, and that, that's really not even you know not even in the in the in the same area of the library we're talking about here. What we're talking about is wherever you're from in South Australia, if you share the party's values, the true party's values, not not the ones that we invent because you know we want to we want a career in politics. Uh, the very true core foundational values of the party, then, you know, we want you to get involved in the process. Come, apply, join, get involved, and uh, you're more than welcome. There was a fascinating podcast recently by former Australian National Party Deputy Prime Minister John Anderson interviewing British author, judge and historian Lord Jonathan Sumption re recently, which you might have heard. Lord Sumption observed that political parties used to be organisations where people from differing backgrounds but of similar political persuasion met and enjoyed collegial debates. However, these days, Assumption said, political parties are populated by people who mostly wish to impose their opinions on others. This explains their declining membership and rancorous meetings. Does this align with your experiences in South Australia, Alex? 
Look, I, I think it, it would be hard to say no to that. I think there have been instances where, uh, you know, where the debate has become vigorous. Uh, it's all, often a good thing. But uh, I, look, I think the problem I've always had is in the last 10 years or so, what we've seen here in South Australia has been a an increasing drift towards the, you know, the, the professionalisation of politics. That is, people who are career politicians, their staff members, um, being the ones that are involved at branch level, being the ones that you know, are uh, the ones that hold important office-bearing positions inside the party um, to the exclusion sometimes of people from the real world. I think that's what's been missing in politics, you know, generally in the last little period. But certainly, uh, you know, in the, in the last 10 years, we've seen a drift into that where really the path to parliament has been a young person working in a parliamentarian's office, uh, getting involved, um, you know, getting elected at, at, as branch president and then standing for a pre-selection with no real life experience. Whereas perhaps 30, 40 years ago, it was more a question of coming back from the real world into the world of giving something back to the community by standing for parliament. And that's what I want to see back. I want to see real people back in politics, not um, paid political staffers running the show because uh, their boss wants them to do so. And bringing real world experience with them. I think that's what's missing in Parliament these days too. Now let's talk about Ron DeSantis in Florida. He's become famous for standing up for protecting such things as the innocence of childhood, families and freedom. And he isn't afraid to take on the biggest opponents like the Disney Corporation and of course the woke media. Is there a lesson for, uh, is there a lesson in DeSantis's style for Australian liberals, do you think, Alex? Well, look, I'm an unashamed Ron fan. I'm sure you are too, Fred. Um, I, I like the way he approaches it. I, I, I don't know why there aren't more in Australia. I, I, I really think that we do need to be in that space a bit more. I, I have this argument all the time. I, I don't see the point in kowtowing to the to the mainstream media. Uh, I think we've got to get out on the front foot and really preach the case and, and, and kind of make it heard. And I, and I think what he does is cut through and you can see the response. He's He's wildly popular in Florida. He's getting runs on the board. I think they had a $20 billion surplus last financial year. And Florida was the free state. People were flocking to Florida because of the, the manner in which he was going about it. So, look, I think we could use another 20 here in Australia of all makes and models. And, um, you know, I think we'll get to that point. I think people are, people are hearing what people like Ron DeSantis are saying and they're listening in the United States. And we're never far away. I just would like to see that turbocharged. And who knows? Maybe some of the new people that are joining the party in SA, maybe there's a Ron DeSantis in amongst them. We're just getting back to how the Liberals in South Australia can broaden their appeal. The advertiser quoted, and in a story about you, the advertiser quoted an anonymous, anonymous moderate Liberal saying, the direction that the party in South Australia is now heading, thanks to you, Alex, could make it, quote, irrelevant in the wider electorate. In other words, the only option is to emulate Labor. Isn't that exactly what's been the wrong with the Liberals lately? Well, look, Fred, that hasn't worked too well over the last little period, let's be honest. And uh, the last state election would, would say exactly that. I, I, I think the first and foremost way you can find yourself uh, in electoral, electoral irrelevance, which is a mouthful, is to try to be like Mike, you know, try as the old Nike commercial used to go. You know, that, uh, no, nobody wants Labor light. Nobody wants the Greens light out of the Liberal Party. History shows that people vote Liberal when they've got something Liberal to aim at. I mean, that was the experience of the 2019 election, frankly. It just, you know, then Prime Minister Morrison aimed squarely at middle Australia. And, and that's what the party always has been, this myth that's peddled by by the left that somehow the Liberal Party is the party of big business. Well, it, it isn't and should never be. 
Um, it's the party of middle Australia. And uh, the Liberal Party's got to be the Liberal Party. That's what we're building here in South Australia. And I, and I hope people hear this and I hope they want to get involved, Fred, because we'd love to have them if they share our values. Well said, Alex. Now, finally, quickly before you go, um, let's, talk, let's go offshore and talk about oil. There's possibly a huge abundance of oil and gas in the Great Australian Bight, which could create a lot of jobs and revive industry in South Australia. Norwegian oil company Equinor was on the verge of being granted approval to search for oil when it pulled out in 2020 because of a local and very embittered protest movement. What will it take, Alex, to encourage other resource companies to continue the vital search for oil off the uh, South Australian coast? Well, I think the first, the most important thing is for people to realise that when they're voting green, when they're talking green politics, they're, they're not really talking about environmental politics anymore. They're talking about Marxist politics, which wants to shut the world down. So I, I think, first and foremost, people have got to understand what the, the so-called green left movement is about. It's not about environmentalism. We're all environmentalists. None of us want to see the environment harmed. Um, and that's a classic example. We've got a, a regulatory framework, which, of course, covers off on all of these things. It's, it's the most stringent checks and balances for a project like that. And yet somehow the, the protest movement that was involved there had people believing that there would be oil rigs 100 metres offshore and all this sort of stuff. I mean, we were talking 300 kilometres offshore. Everything was tested. There were staged approvals, the whole lot. Um, and unfortunately, that, that small number of uh, protesters that were, were pushing on scared away what should be now a very important project in our uh, in our energy security future. And one of the great things that former President Donald Trump did was guarantee the United States energy security and independence by getting these projects done. We need to be back in that in that space. And look, if there's oil in the bite and we've got the right regulatory process to protect the environment, we should be digging and drilling until the cows come home, Fred. Anybody who doesn't understand the importance of energy independence at a time like this is absolutely bonkers, Alex. Alex, thanks so much for your time. Thanks, Fred. Great to be with you. That's South Australian Senator Alex Antich, who is one of the handful of Liberals sticking up for Liberal values in Australia today. Now, before I go, the Solicitor General Stephen Donoghue released his findings today about former Prime Minister Scott Morrison secretly appointing himself to a series of ministerial portfolios. Donoghue says Morrison broke no laws but, quote, fundamentally undermined, unquote, the principles of responsible government because Parliament can't hold a minister accountable if it doesn't know who that minister is. Prime Minister Anthony Albanese, sensing political points to be scored, has announced he will commission a further inquiry into the matter. Well, Morrison has no fans here at ADH. He was a dud Liberal Prime Minister, devoid of the Menzian principles on which his party was founded. As, as Senator Alex Antich said earlier, those principles are now behind a revival of the party in South Australia, and hopefully this will spread to party branches right across the nation. And as I said in my editorial, there is a far bigger abuse of power that the government needs to investigate. Morrison never exercised his secret ministerial powers, and even if he did, he would have been acting legally. The powers that were exercised during the COVID pandemic, though, were arguably not legal and caused more damage than anything outside war in our entire history. Albo has said there will be a royal commission into the COVID response. If it is thorough and leads to criminal charges, then Albo will have proved to be a better PM 
than Morrison ever was. We'll watch with interest. And also, if you followed the Outer Known Pro Surf Contest in Tahiti on the weekend, you will have seen that our favourite in the event, young West Australian Jack Robinson, was eliminated early. It was eventually won by this young Brazilian, Miguel Pupo, a relative unknown. Robinson, though, has held on to his position at second on the world rankings, with only one event left in California to decide the world title. This means he's only two heat wins away from being the first Australian male to win the world title since Mick Fanning in 2013 in a sport that Australia dominated throughout the 70s, 80s and 90s. We hope he brings it home. Well, that's all from me. Thanks for watching. And remember, tell your friends to download the ADH app to their phones and TVs where you can watch all our content live and on demand and it's free. And I'll see you tomorrow night at nine o'clock. Good night.